Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up. When you take a complete break from training, you can expect between 2 and 4% reductions. We simply lose the ability to activate or recruit muscle fibers the way that we used to. I guess the key question for listeners is, well, how quickly will it unwind? Do you get responders and non-responders to training? Physiology rewards consistency with resilience. So fitness... We either use it or lose it, and how fast do we lose it? That is the question that we're going to be answering hopefully today with uh, myself, Mike Finch, as your host, and of course, Professor Ross Tucker. And the reason why we're discussing this is because for those of you who live in the Southern Hemisphere, it's getting to be a bit wintry and a little bit more difficult to get out early in the morning for those rides or those runs or anything that you might do outside. And for those in the Northern Hemisphere, I guess your dark winters are really dark, so you'll be be able to keep uh, this podcast in your list of podcasts to listen to when it gets to your winter time when it becomes a bit more challenging to uh, focus on your training and I think for those of us that are out there trying to you know, get our mileage up keep our fitness up all those sort of things the question always sits in our heads is if we have a, a bad week at work or there's a bit of stress or we have to travel or all those sorts of things how much fitness do we lose in the time that we don't regularly exercise so that's why we decided to do this podcast today and just discuss what are the numbers? What does the science say? What is the, um, the, the, the studies that have happened around this say about our fitness and how do we uh, go about limiting the damage that we do when we're not training as much as regularly as we can? Um, and is it as bad as we think it is? Um, and I think for, I don't know, Ross, I, I, don't, I know for myself that if I, cycling is a weird thing because with cycling, the more you ride, the better you ride. With running, you have to be a little bit more cognizant of your mileage, so you're less likely to be able to do lots and lots of mileage very quickly because you have to build up. Um, I guess in lots of other sports, there's a combination of being able to train, to be able to rest, to be able to make sure that you don't have injuries, all those sorts of things. But let's just talk initially about how do we define the markers of fitness? In other words, as we get fitter, what happens to our bodies? Um yeah, I suppose if I can just backtrack one step, when we talk about detraining, we're talking about the removal or the reduction, because it can either be from all to nothing, or from all to half, a quarter, a third, whatever. And it can also either be deliberate or forced upon us by things like you alluded to, the weather, life gets in the way, injuries, illness, whatever else you might. And then of course, there's deliberate. So when we taper, for instance, when we make a decision to have an easier month because we just are tired and drawn out and worn out. So there are all those different things that we have to now try and assess and understand how much will I lose from the peak or the point that I'm at. And when I then resume, what can I expect? So this is hopefully going to be interesting to everyone because very few people will have the luxury or the ability to do 12 months continuously nonstop 
one one year after the next. So yeah. we all have to have breaks and sometimes forced upon us. So that's why we're talking about this. So with that in mind, in answer to your question, fitness is extremely context specific. If you're listening to this as a swimmer compared to a rower, compared to a cyclist or a runner or a tennis player, hockey player, whatever, the answer depends on that sport. So perhaps you want to narrow it down a little. <laughs> Well, I suppose for any anybody that's an athlete or anybody that's even a, a, a sort of a, a semi-serious and maybe not even semi-serious, somebody that's just interested in health and fitness, there's this perception about, you know, what fitness means to different people, I guess, because if you're a, a wrestler versus a cyclist versus a rower, there's all different, obviously the differences are, are, are vast, mm. you know, row, row, a wrestler needs to be strong, a, a rower and a cyclist needs to have endurance base, all that sort of thing. So. Can we generalize in terms of what fitness means? Is it is it difficult to say that? Okay, so in a practical sense, and let's do this practically, because in a moment we'll start getting into some specific studies and then it starts to become a little bit academic as we work towards understanding and interpreting. But in a practical sense, absolutely. And the best way then to define fitness is do I have the functional ability to do the training session or the race? So just yesterday I was on my bike riding a, a, a section of road that you and I and our mates have ridden a great deal. And I was thinking back to four or five months ago on that same section of road and, and thinking back to A, how much more slowly we rode it yeah. and B, how much more difficult it felt. Mm. So the fact that it's become easier and faster or one of the two, because it can be the same speed easier or faster at the same effort, is the surest indication of fitness. So when I play tennis for the first time in three or four months and after 20 minutes, my feet are no longer moving, I'm tired, my upper body is already fatigued, I know that I'm not fit for that. After two months of playing, I'm aware that the quality of my performance has gone up. So the easiest practical or pragmatic way for listeners to understand fitness is to ask simply, am I capable of doing this the way that I'm accustomed to? Mm. If the answer is yes, I'm fit enough. If the answer is I'm, I'm better than I was, that means I'm improving. And if the answer is a month ago I was riding with these guys, now I'm hanging on, that is a sign that your fitness has regressed relative yeah. to theirs. So without we could go into massive detail about why that is, metabolically, biochemically, uh, neurologically, muscularly, whatever. But the point is, if you're functionally capable, you're fit enough. I mean, obviously, fitness also changes because somebody that is a very good cyclist or runner might not be able to play a long game of tennis, which I always find quite strange is that you can be fit in one area, not fit in another. It's it's different, different everything. And that's the specificity thing. Yeah. And specificity is one of the key principles that we will soon discover also guides the detraining process. And even within cycling, there is a specificity yeah. of training. So when you go out and do three hours that was a different physiological demand to doing one hour that includes a number of high intensity short climbs with recoveries on the other side of those climbs. And so the fitness is sport specific and even within sports, it is context specific. So when we understand how we are improving, we must remember that. And then when we are going to detrain, which again is either the removal or reduction of the training stimulus, then we must also understand that that will also drive changes that are specific to what we take away. Yeah. So that's that's really important. It sets up the discussion and the debate. I know, I know that I always talk about Phil Maffetone, and I've probably spoken to him, spoken about him more in the last eighteen months in our podcast than any other expert in the field. Now, 
one of the interesting things about this, and I think when you say, it's lovely to hear you say, when you, when you know you're not fit, it's a good way of like seeing where your fitness is. But it's it's one of those frustrating things where you go like, I'd just like to know what the numbers say. So mm. Phil Maffetone used to have, I don't know whether he still have, promotes this, but he has this thing called a maximum aerobic function test where he would say every three weeks you must go and run the same course at the same heart rate and take your time, whether it's a 5K or it's a cycling route or whatever, make sure the wind is not strong that day, all those sort of things. So you create almost a scientific experiment within yourself. Um, is it realistic for people to have a practical way of judging their fitness rather than just a perception of what their fitness is. Yes, it's realistic and probably necessary because <clears throat> we'll shortly discover that when, especially the type A personalities, when they stop training for a week or two, their perception of their loss of fitness usually exceeds what the actual reality is. So <laughs> I can think of one person specifically we were talking about before this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm the same, I think. Uh, everyone, if, you, if you're forced to take a week off, it feels like a year. Yes. And when you get back on the bike, there's actually an argument to be made that you'd be better than you were the week before because you're rested and recovered. But in your mind, you feel like you have actually lost everything. Well, I'll give you give an example of a, a, a good friend of the pod, Tegan Phillips, who's a very strong cyclist here in Cape Town and uh, does a lot of mega endurance events. And I think she took a week off to go to Johannesburg or something to do some sort of work. And she came back and she's on her Instagram complaining about the fact that she's lost so much fitness. But in reality, that's her perception, isn't it? Yeah, of, there's a small, there'll be a small loss and we'll yes. discover what the magnitude of that is as we move through this in a moment. But yeah. yes, it's, it's a perceptual thing. So for that reason, it would be useful to have some kind of measurable metric. But the key thing, and this is a point that I've made before on this podcast, is when you measure something, you must understand that it has valid meaning for what it's meant to do. In other words, it must mm -hmm. be, um, it must actually measure what it purports to measure. Yeah. So your example of the Maffetone thing is, is useful if you repeat that often enough and you have developed what you can almost think of as your fingerprint or your, in this instance, I suppose, heart print, mm. in that you know what is typical for, your, for yourself. Because if you do this once every couple of months, your heart rate, A, is variable enough from one day to the next. Mm -hmm. You know, it varies five, six beats per minute without any known physiological reason. It's affected enough by diet and weather and life stress that you could get completely the wrong message from that heart rate data on day A versus day B, mm -hmm. and then deduce exactly the wrong thing. So as long as you are accustomed to using data to inform your evaluations and your decisions and assessments of yourself, then absolutely it's very useful. So for instance, what I would do is measure all the time heart rate on a ride. Mm -hmm. And so now I know, and, and we all know this because we talk about it on our rides, we know that on a section of road climbing at an intensity of XYZ, RPE of eight, heart rate should be within five beats per minute of 170. Yeah. If it's now 185, something is up. And so then you learn, you learn about yourself. Mm. Um, so, so absolutely that matters. If you're a professional athlete and you really wanna know between the time, let's say that your, your season ends, you then go into an off season and a pre-season, and then your season begins a couple of months later, you would go to a laboratory and you would test things because outcomes, physiological outcomes like VO2 max, lactate threshold, power output at lactate threshold, heart rate at max and submax, those things are going to be relatively sensitive markers of your training status and therefore indicators of your potential performance. 
So yeah. you would do those tests regularly. But I think the key is you have to test regularly enough in order to understand what it means for you, and then you can make informed decisions. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's that's good advice. I mean, I quite like the idea of having something where I can literally say, not that I would, not that I could find the time to do it, but there is, if you are really interested in this, having that idea at well if you're riding with your heart rate every single day yes you know what you're going to do on that heart rate but if you are regular enough to do every three weeks a certain test either on a stationary trainer and you can set is almost establish a baseline then you at least you've got something to work for in terms of yeah. okay i'm getting better or and i'm detraining exactly and the key thing and i can't stress this enough is you look for patterns yeah. not specific changes because if you did that over the course of six months even fortnightly mm. you would end up with 12 data points that one or two that lies way out of whack doesn't matter. Mm. You don't overreact to one mm. data point. You, you, you start to look for patterns that emerge and you understand that your physiology is not mechanical mm. and it is susceptible to random things as well as other life stresses like I've mentioned with respect to heart rate. Mm. Same goes, by the way, for heart rate variability and so on. But if you, if you focus on the pattern and you see the pattern emerge over time, then you can make an assessment. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's just go back to what we were originally talking. So the the markers of fitness. Just just pray see that again for us, so that we have an idea of if you went into a lab and they tested you, what would they test from day one to day six to test whether you were fitter or not? Well, over those over those time frames, not much, because fitness doesn't emerge that quickly. Mm. Uh, and and without okay, let's let's give the game away here. The the one of the conclusions that we're going to get to here is that in an endurance trained athlete, when you take a complete break from training, you can expect between two and four percent reductions in most of the systems that make you a good endurance athlete per week. So that's rule of thumb number one: is two to four percent per week. So what are we talking about there? We're talking about things like VO two max, listeners of this podcast and anyone who reads any endurance material will know VO2 max, it's your maximal oxygen consumption, effectively an indication of the size of your aerobic engine, your endurance engine. Mm -hmm. Blood volume goes up with training, drops when you detrain. Heart rate, sub-maximal heart rate, as you get fitter, it is lower. As you lose fitness, it goes up. So when you are riding at say 180 watts, a fit athlete sits with a lower heart rate than when the athlete is less fit. Uh, cardiac output drops, ventricular mass, literally the muscle volume in your heart goes down. Hmm. Uh, when we talk about metab metabolic systems, your, do you remember that we spoke once before about one of the key things that drives endurance capability is your body's ability to use fat as a fuel? Yeah. And one of the key responses that drives that metabolically is that we literally produce more mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And those mitochondria contain what are called oxidative enzymes, specifically able to burn fat. With less training or detraining, that oxidative mass goes down. Our oxidative enzyme capacity drops. The lipoprotein lipases, these are enzymes that are responsible for activating fats, um, adipose tissues so that we can burn it, that drops down. Your lactate threshold decreases. That's important because it's a, an indirect marker of your endurance capability. Muscle glycogen levels go down. Then on the neuromuscular side, uh, on the muscular side, you have a number of different changes. Your, initially, some of the responses that make us less strong are neurological in nature. We, we simply lose the ability to activate or recruit muscle fibers the way that we used to. Mm. 
the volume or the density of the capillaries in our muscles goes down. That means less oxygen to those muscles, which affects performance. So pretty much everything, to sum up, because I've been speaking for too long now, pretty much everything that you earn with training will diminish or reverse as a consequence of detraining. So what went up comes down, what goes down will go up. And the cleanest example of this, by the way, is when we look at adaptation to the heat. If you put someone in a heat chamber on day zero, and you measure what happens to them over the course of two weeks, where you're going to every single day expose them to the heat, you'll see a number of things. Their sweat rate goes up, their plasma volume goes up, their heart rate while exercising comes down, thermal comfort improves, skin temperature drops. When you then take them out of the heat and you put them back in the cold condition, that graph basically runs in reverse. Yeah. So where heart rate once went up, it, uh, down, it now goes up, sweat rate comes back to normal, plasma volume drops over time, skin temperature goes up, thermal comfort comes down. So basically th the thing just unwinds. And I guess the key question for listeners is, well, how quickly will it unwind? Because that's going to yeah. be the thing that's making me that's anxious That's the million now. dollar question. Exactly. <laughs> I mean... As, as the scary thing is, is it shows you how fast, well, we're going to talk about timelines now, but it shows us how fast our bodies adapt to different, to different stimuli as we go along through life, whether it's exercise or heat or cold or that sort of thing, because our bodies are constantly adapting, aren't they? Yes, although some people adapt faster than others. Yeah. And so at this point, it's worth putting that in as a, as a bit of fine print, is when we talk about general principles, 2 to 4% per week loss and so on, some people will lose twice that and other mm. people half. In the same way that there are some people, and we know them, who will start training and within a month they'll be almost as good as they'll ever be. Yeah. Other people, three months later, are still on an upward trajectory, but it's a much slower one. Mm. And so you get responders and non-responders to training. And there are studies that are like now trying to link that to genetics. And they found that there are some people who, it doesn't matter how much they train, their, their capacity to improve in response to training is literally down at like 3 or 4%. Other people will improve by 30% within a few weeks. Yeah. And then just as there are those responders, non-responders, there are also responders and non-responders to detraining. Mm. And so these are all general concepts. And, that's, and then it's affected over and above that by things like your training history. Mm. 30 years of training makes you more resilient to the losses, whereas one month of training means that it's not yet embedded. It's almost like um, a model airplane. The glue hasn't dried because yeah. it's just been built. So you do, I mean, you do build up a level of base fitness the more years you're training, even though you might go down. Is there a, is there a constant, is it like the rings of the oak tree? You know, are you constantly <laughs> building the, the base and, and the width of your training as you, as you go in, in time? Yes. Um, again, within the variability imposed on it by genetics, but yes, yeah. that, the, and so the resilience almost of your training benefits because at some point you'll reach a ceiling in performance mm. and so further training is not going to make you much better a couple percent here or there but the loss that you would experience when you detrained off that very solid foundation is going to be more gradual mm. than if you have just achieved those gains in the last six or seven months and so there's there's a principle there where physiology rewards consistency with resilience yeah. Uh, with longevity of those benefits. 
And that's quite a key message in a way, isn't it? Because it shows you that people that have a long history, whether it's from training or exercising from a sort of childhood time, and have done that throughout their lives, are much more likely to be able to maintain something. Whereas somebody that's just started, it almost explains why it's so hard for beginners in that first six months. Because if they have a bad week, they go backwards by so much. Whereas somebody who's been training for a long time can maybe pick up a little bit easier than they would Mm. if they had less training background. Yeah, and there are metabolic, biochemical, genetic, mm. and I dare say a lot of psychological factors in play there as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, but arguably it's true. It's, I don't know that it's ever been quantified in a study. You can imagine that would yeah. be quite difficult to do. But certainly the anecdotal reporting of it is that your, your lifelong endurance athlete is much more stable in response to changes in training than someone who's not. And that's, I think, quite intuitive. Seems obvious. So, so let's talk about this this million dollar question, this million dollar number in terms of how fast fitness is lost when we don't train. Do we know have any any numbers or research into what that is? We do, and again, it depends a great deal on what you are assessing with respect to fitness mm-hmm. and who you assess it in and the circumstances in which it is lost. So the, the two overriding principles here are use it or lose it. That's the that's the concept really of reversibility. Okay, just explain that. Well, we, we mentioned earlier, I think I said, if what went up will come down, what went down will go up. And so the stimulus that causes us to adapt to training and therefore improve our fitness and our performance is reversed when that training stimulus is taken away. Like I've just said for plasma volume, heart rate and so on. Now, the good news is, lest people panic, <laughs> is that your, your loss will never make you worse than a baseline sedentary person was. So, for instance, there was a study done many years ago now looking at well-trained distance runners who were then basically forced or asked in the study to stop training for 10 to 12 weeks. And sure enough, their oxidative enzymes, remember that's the, that's the enzymes that are carried in those mitochondria and which are responsible for helping us burn fat, they drop by 36% over the course of those 8 to 12 weeks. Mm. But they still end up considerably higher than in a control population that had never trained. Yeah. So they don't return to the floor. Right. So they go from the top floor to the mezzanine or the middle floors. They don't yeah. go all the way to the basement. That's good news. So what those you see, so what those trained athletes had earned through training was a oxidative capacity that was two hundred percent higher than baseline. Mm-hmm. And then you lose about thirty, forty percent of it over the course of a few months. Which means you're still way better off than if you'd never done anything. So right. you you know your 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 money's always in the bank. It yeah. might go up or down a little bit, but it's never the bank account is never empty, so physiologically speaking. Yeah. Okay? So, but that, that's the concept of reversibility. The second thing is that you can defend the losses of detraining by being smart about doing less. And that concept that drives that is specificity. And I think I mentioned earlier that specificity is basically that the physiological adaptations are very specific to the nature of the adaptation. So if we train... For speed, we get faster. Right. If we train for endurance, we get better endurance, aerobic capabilities. And when we take away the stimulus, the same thing happens. So when you take someone who's doing, say, 10 hours a week, and you take away 90% of that, the 10% that remains can still do something for them. But what it does depends on what that 10% looks like. If it's high-intensity training... They maintain or defend the intensity gains. If it's low intensity, then it defends that aspect, but they lose the high intensity. Does that, right. does that make sense? Yeah. And I'll, I'll, 
If it doesn't, just bear with me because well, I'll give, give you a, some give examples some, I mean, in I, a moment. I, I can probably think of a couple of practical examples, but give us a practical example for an endurance athlete, for instance. Okay, so there were there have been a few studies on this, and just just to put you in the picture, um, these studies generally have the same sort of design. They've got a training block or a period over which time athletes get fitter, whether it's running or cycling or kayaking, and then they test them, and that's called the pre-test. And then what they do is they force a detraining period, which is between four and 24 weeks in most of the literature that's published. So that's really the intervention. I'm going to stop you for training, from training for four, to six, four weeks to six months, and then I'm going to test you at the end of that, and I'm going to see how much you've lost. That's, mm-hmm. that's basically what they're doing here. And I'll give you one example. This is a study from the 1990 where they took a group of fairly well-trained runners, and over three weeks they cut them from doing 80K six days a week well, not 80Ks running six 80Ks days a week. 80Ks in yeah. total running six days a week, mm-hmm. down to 24Ks running five days a week. So the frequency of training is the same. The volume is way down. Mm-hmm. You know, you're cutting it by 75 odd percent here, more yeah. 80%. But what they made sure is that what they kept doing was similar in intensity to what they used to do. So the volume is down, but the intensity is the same. So the intensity is not up, it's the same. It's the same. Okay, so right. they're doing a similar proportion of faster paced running. Right. And what you then find is that when you test them at high intensities, they've lost nothing. Three weeks later, they are the same athlete. Their 5K times were literally identical. Wow. One second difference. Their VO2 max, which is a function of your exercise capacity at max, that's high intensity, yeah. is basically exactly the same. And so... And what was the you, gap? Six, six, six months? Three weeks. Three weeks. Okay, three weeks so, off. Okay. So this is like this right. is like a work trip, a right. family holiday, illness or injury, mm-hmm. tapering. Yeah. But as long as you keep the intensity stimulus in your training, mm. you will defend the intensity performance. Mm. What they didn't test in this is how do they go over long-distance exercise. But there's another study on that one, Madsen et al. from 1993. Similar thing. They took a group of runners. And over five weeks, they detrained them. Mm-hmm. And they go from eight to 10 hours a week, which is fairly substantial running, down to 35 minutes a week. So that's a big drop. Wow. But those 35 minutes are high intensity. So they are doing fast paced running. And the same thing happens is when they test their VO2 max, it's no different. So they have the same maximal capacity after five weeks of no train, basically no training as they did before, because the, the, the little training they did is high-intensity training. So therefore, it specifically defends high-intensity running ability. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. But yeah. when they looked at these athletes and they made them do a sub-max run, their heart rate is up by 4% after detraining because their cardiovascular system has become deconditioned. Right. Their oxidation of fat is hugely down. It's down from 37% of their energy down to 30%. So that's a 20-odd percent change in... How, how much energy they get from fat. And the consequence of all this is that when they make them go to exhaustion at a low intensity, they are far worse, down by 21%. So before they could go for 80 minutes till exhaustion, now they go for 62. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the moral of this particular study is that if you keep the high intensity training going, you will defend that performance element, but you'll lose the bit that you don't keep going. Does that make sense? So we're coming up with all these little um, sayings today, like, you know, use it to lose it. But, I mean, you almost have to, there's another one I can throw in there, train it to gain it. I mean, it, it makes sense to say that if you've 
if you're maintaining the intensity, mm-hmm. you're going to maintain the intensity. If you're losing the endurance, you lose. So it's almost, it's fairly logical. The science proves yeah. the logic, really. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. what you would expect. Yeah. It's yeah. training to gain it. And then when you stop training it, you undo the gains yeah. in it. Yeah. And it's very specific. Yeah. And so hopefully every listener has now recognized that there are some practical implications of this. Because if you are forced to rest for one to three weeks, even five, as I mentioned in this, in this study, you can defend at extremely low. I mean, they went from 10 hours a week to 35 minutes. No, I mean, that's a, a massive dropout. drop. Yeah. But they were still able to defend one of the attributes that makes yeah. a runner. You can't defend everything. I mean, mm. if you could, elite athletes would be able to train two hours a week. They can't. You have to keep the stimulus going. But you can keep it. You can keep your performance levels a lot more uh, consistent or mm. similar with very small investments as long as you make them smartly. Yeah. Yeah. So one day a week of high volume, but no intensity, would might achieve the opposite. So you might lose your 5K pace, your VO2 max might drop, but your sub-maximal ability will be maintained. And so the point is don't panic, because if you're smart, you can actually defend things. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's talk a little bit about specific sports because all these different sports have different sort of stimuli. Um, what studies have come out from, from mm. specific areas? So again, we can talk about specifics with the, um, not proviso, but bearing in mind that the, the, the specific sports illustrate the principle. Yeah. And, and very few of them violate the principle, which is cool. So Interesting. I know that um, many of you listeners, like we're chucking a lot of numbers at you today and references <laughs> of studies, but hopefully a pattern or a principle will start to emerge. And we start here, there's a study that was done on 10 top-level cyclists. Now we're talking guys who were doing 20 hours a week. They were in one of those European continental teams in Spain. It was a study by Maldonado Martin et al., 2016. We'll, we'll give some links in the show notes. I was going to say, it sounds like an Italian cyclist himself. Yeah, this is, it would be a Spanish one. <laughs> and so what happens here is that at the end of their season, they have an off season of four weeks. And so for those four weeks, they do no training at all. So they go from 20 hours a week to zero. Now that's significant. That's yeah. huge detraining. And then they measure them four weeks later when they resume training and they look at a bunch of different things to ask how they've changed. And so you wouldn't be surprised to discover that they they increase mass by two and a half percent because in the absence of that 20 hours a week and not similar changes in diet, they're going to pick up a bit of weight. Yeah. It's surprisingly small, two and a half percent. Skin folds, which is basically body fat, is up 15 percent. See, that's significant because what's happening there is that their lean mass is going down because they're not activating the muscle any longer, mm-hmm. but their, their body fat percentage is going up. So their overall mass goes up very slightly, but the body fat percentage goes up quite a bit. Probably necessary physiologically. Yep. VO2 max goes from 78, so that's really high. That's how you know these guys are pretty good cyclists. Drops by 10.8-11%. Might have something to do with the mass as well? Uh, this, is, this is relative to mass. Relative uh, to yeah, okay. they measure this relative yep. to mass. So, so there you see a 10-11% drop in endurance capacity. 
That's what VO2 max is measuring. Mm -hmm. And then they do other tests like power output at VO2 max. That drops by 8.5%. They measure red blood cell count. That's down by 6.5%. Hemoglobin is down by 5.5%. And their workload at lactate threshold is down by 15%. So this is a consistent picture from what we spoke about before, where when you remove the training stimulus entirely, you see between 2 and 4% per week of loss in all these variables. So VO2 max... Four weeks, 11%. Uh, peak power output, four weeks, 9%. Lactate threshold, four weeks, 15%. So this, you see the principle? Yeah. It's yeah. about 2 to 4% per week. Right. Kayaking studies, similar design. You take elite kayakers who were doing about 15, 16 hours of training per week. Suddenly they do none. And you see the same thing. Over five weeks, VO2 max drops by 11%. There you go, 2 to 4%. Yep. Their paddling power output drops by 8% over the course of those five weeks. Their muscle strength function drops by similar amounts. Hmm. And so the principle is that elite athletes will lose between 2 and 4% per week when the training stimulus is removed entirely. Now, one of the most interesting things is that in this kayaking study, what they did was they took half their elite kayakers and they gave them no training at all. So they go from 15 to zero. Like our when you talk about kayakers, are these the guys that are doing flat water yes. racing as opposed to people going down slalom stuff? This is flat yeah, water okay. stuff. So, so it's endurance. Are, well, it depends, actually. Um, at the Olympic Games, there's 1,000 meters and there's a 200. The 200 right. guys are sprinters. I mean, I worked a little bit with South African kayaking. Those 200 guys are just power athletes, immense, immense upper body power. Yeah. The 1,000 guys are more endurance-based, so it's okay. a bit of a combination. Right. High intensity endurance, mm -hmm. basically. So what they did in this study, which was really interesting, is they gave half those kayakers no training at all for five weeks. So they go removal of training. The other half of them get given basically 20% of normal. So instead of doing uh, three strength sessions a week, they do one. And instead of doing 10 to 15 endurance kayaking sessions per week, they do two. So they're doing 20% of the training. And what's really interesting is the group that does nothing over five weeks drops by 11% for VO2 max. The group that does 20% of their training drops by 5.5%. The group that does nothing, paddling power output drops by 8%. The group that does 20% of normal drops by 4%. So the moral of the story here is that if you only do one-fifth of your normal volume, mm -hmm. the loss is cut in half. Yeah, which is a, so a an amazing figure really, isn't and it? And that's really, so a yeah. small investment sure. cuts your detraining losses in half, literally in half. And that's similar, by the way, they, they looked at in this particular study, they looked at their strength variables as well. Um, so in this instance, it was a bunch of uh, bench presses and bench pulls. Five weeks of no training, 9%. One strength session per week, 4% loss. Sure. That's in bench press. Oh, bench pull, 8%, 3.4%. So once again, one third of the training stimulus cuts the loss in half. So mm. if you're listening to this and you are faced with a family vacation or whatever else that's going to stop you from training your normal way, if you can even do 20%, you will half the damage, quote unquote, that that break in training does for you. So when you, people say, oh, I, I, can't, I, I can only get out for half an hour today, it's not worth it. Actually, it is. It is, and that if that half an hour was compared to your normal four to six hours a week, mm -hmm. that half an hour could be saving you half the losses, mm. um, and you don't have to like stress about it, get anxious about it. You will mm. cut in half how much you're going to lose otherwise.
I mean, I'm saying it's a sliding scale to some extent, isn't it? Because obviously, if you keep doing 20% of the work over a longer period, the, the, those those fitness losses will become more and more. But this is Correct. specific studies that so that's, show. So yeah. these are time-constrained detraining right. studies. Yeah. So in this instance, it was four weeks for those elite cyclists. It was five weeks for those elite kayakers. Mm. Remember, again, these are elite athletes. So we're probably looking at like five to 15 years worth of consistently accumulated training gains. Yeah. These are robust physiological specimens. There's a lot of rings on the trees. There's, exactly. And <laughs> so a person who's got one or two years might see slightly larger losses than this. But the principle is, and, and I think this is what we both want to emphasize today, is it, it doesn't actually matter. If, you've, if you're faced with a situation where you have to stop training or reduce your training because of a family issue, because of work stress, I mean, is your training that important that you want to get fired? Maybe it is. Don't answer that. But you, sometimes <laughs> we just cannot. We, we, we are recreational athletes. We can't yeah. afford. Travel gets in the way. Life injuries. Mm. If you're faced with that situation, it, it doesn't pay you to agonize over whether you're going to lose 4% or 6%. You're going to lose. Yeah. But the principle is that if you can do even one-fifth, you'll lose half mm. of what you would have lost otherwise. So use the principle and don't get hung up on the numbers would be my advice. See, what's interesting about that, and we touched on it a little bit when we started the pod today, is that the perception that we have of losing fitness is a lot worse than what the numbers suggest. Because as our friend Tegan um, shows us that, you know, one week off the bike when she's riding, you know, three or four hundred kilometers a week, will probably lead, you know, might lose her two or four percent as we've now seen but she'll get that back and i suppose this is the question how soon do you get it back right when you've lost it yeah so there's more good news on the other side of detraining good because now we've got <laughs> we've got an accumulated foundation yeah we take away the stimulus with a period of detraining and then we reintroduce training in what we can call the retraining period right and the rule of thumb there and again remember these are generalities i don't want you guys listening to this at home to get hung up on the specific numbers but the the general principle is that whatever the period was over which you lost it you will regain it in half that time so there are studies yeah. that have looked at strength changes in admittedly most of these studies are done in older men um, it would be really fascinating to look at that in younger athletes and particularly in women. But the principle is that if I detrain for, say, eight weeks or four weeks, I will be able to regain what I lost in four weeks or two weeks. Right. So let me, let me not throw too many numbers at you. Yeah, I get if, that. If the detraining is four weeks long, the retraining period will be around two. Right. Very conservative. To get to back you where you were when you, before you went on the four-week break. Right. So now right. what we're trying to do with this is manage some expectations, okay, because you've been forced to stop because of work, injury, illness, whatever, travel. However long you had to stop for, very conservatively, assume that it's going to take you that long to regain where you were before. Yeah. In reality, it's probably been, we're going to be quicker than that Yeah. by a factor of two, but... I don't want you to force it and then go and injure yourself by trying to accelerate and push the issue mm. too hard. So mm. conservatively, one-to-one, -one, in reality, probably you'll get back even quicker than that. The nice thing about that is I think a lot of people who take those little breaks, enforced or not, um, tend to go piling back into training because they feel they have to make up mm. and they've lost so much fitness. You often mm. hear athletes saying, I've lost so much fitness. But as we've discovered now, that so much fitness is probably less than you think it is and you'll get it back in a shorter time than you think it, you will anyway. So 
you don't need to go barreling back in at 500% because just uh, ease up and just plus, get into it slowly. Plus, know? that rest period might actually be quite good for you psychologically, yeah, yeah. emotionally, and physiologically because mm. what it effectively means is you've got an opportunity to recharge. You'll come back to the bike fresh. Yeah. If you then make the mistake of trying to rush your way back to where you were before, you almost instantly take away any benefit of refreshness and, and cover, recovery. Yeah. And you end up within three or four days of returning being as tired as you were before and having lost the fitness. Mm. So if you, if you allow that fitness to reemerge slowly, and it's not slowly, it's still, it's still as quickly as it was lost, conservatively speaking, then you'll be far better off. Mm. So, so for example, I'll give you some numbers. This is, as I mentioned, the, the best studies I can find, the most well-controlled ones are, are in older men. So I can't think of a reason why it would be different in younger people, if anything, Older men are would, pretty slow. Yeah, slow because of the, the hormonal changes that happen mm-hmm. as we get older, you know, the testosterone growth hormone reductions. Mm-hmm. So what they did in this one is they trained a group of men up for six months. That was the, the training period. They then detrained them for six months. That's a long time. I mean, they, they're really – that's – you would think that you Imagine do, volunteering for that. You'd think <laughs> – well, I suppose if you were doing nothing before, then what do you care? Yes, but if you are doing something before, that's a tough but then you, experiment to be part of. Yeah, so for six months, I mean, half a year, they do yeah, nothing. And then they retrain them for 12 weeks, so three months. I'm never going to do that. And what they found was that, okay, so let's, let's say for argument's sake, they get up through training to 100 units of strength. Mm-hmm. After 24 weeks of detraining, they're down to 80. That's how much they lose. They lose about 15 to 20% over those 24 weeks. It's about 1% per week in this group of, of, of older men. Then when they retrain, by about the 12th week, they've regained everything. So hmm. 24 weeks off, I lose 20%. Within 12, I've regained that 20%. Sure. Another st- That was Henwood et al. 2008. Another one was Blockyau. This is a study out of Belgium. I've, I'm, no doubt I've murdered that surname. This was a 2020 paper, really interesting. 12 weeks of training makes these athletes 36% stronger. 12 weeks of detraining, they lose 14%. So first important point, okay. you don't lose what you gained. You only lose part of it. I'm 36% stronger and I only get 14% weaker, sure. which means that even after the detraining period, you're still better off than when you started. Right. Moral of the story, don't panic. Mm. And this is 12 weeks off, man. this is a long time. Then they resume training again, and within six weeks, they're back to where they were at peak. Mm. So 12 weeks off, six weeks back. Mm. And then they keep going for another six weeks and they end up considerably stronger even than in that peak. <laughs> so you will gain it back. You will gain it back quicker than you think and you'll gain back more than you lost. Just don't force it because the last thing you'd want after a period of detraining is to injure yourself two weeks in and have another period of detraining. Because that's what's really going to harm your harm your ultimate return. So, mm. so hopefully that gives people some solace in the fact that they're not going to lose as much as they think. They're still going to be better off than they were before the the detraining started, and they're going to regain what they lost quicker than they would imagine as well. Yeah, I mean that is very encouraging. It sounds like playing the stock market in many ways, isn't it? Because you you kind of have ups and downs, uh, and I think 
in anybody that's got is a regular exerciser, you'll have those ups and downs naturally. And we talked about the outside influences and that. But you know, there's also important to recognise that most professional athletes, and I think this probably applies to anybody that is in a semi-serious state, that it's 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 important to take breaks in exercise and therefore when you do you can do it with some measure of confidence that you're not going to lose too much because maybe we can just talk a little bit about that because rest and recuperation not just physically is also a mental recuperation as well yeah and that's why i know it's lousy when you're forced to stop training because Mm. of work stress and injuries and whatever else it sucks because you, you train not only because you're trying to mold your body, you actually train because it's a mental, psychological, emotional yeah. benefit, spiritual for many people. Yeah. But I think if you reframe it and if your mindset says that this period away from the bike or the shoes, whatever it is, is actually going to do me a lot of good, then you start to actually recognize that there are opportunities and the the downside of detraining is never as large as the potential upside. Mm. Given what we've said in this podcast, you you will regain what you have lost quicker than you lost it. Mm. You will regain more than you lost, and you won't lose as much as you imagined to begin with. Yeah. So just chill, <laughs> basically. I mean, it's like the stock market, except <laughs> unlike the stock market or Bitcoin, you, can't you lose never it lose it all. Yes. Your your bank account is always in the black. Mm. Like I said, that running study. Those trained athletes started with an oxidative enzyme of fat burning capacity. That's and that's a marker for all the others. If that's up, all the others are up too. Trust me. Yeah. They started two hundred percent better off than an untrained person, mm. and then they lost only thirty six percent of that. So, even at their lowest, they're still way better, mm. and then they regain it quickly. So, just be chilled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk around some sort of practical version of this we've used that three-week example and the five-week example of the sort of a time that somebody takes off and when we talk about anything less than that now we can start to see that this picture around fitness and the level of which we lose it is actually isn't as bad as we think it is when we talk about maintaining things like we touched on the endurance side what do we know about athletes that are doing strength training specifically not necessarily bodybuilding, but people that are looking for strength gains all the time. Do yeah. they lose it at the same level or does those principles always exist amongst strength trainers? The principles exist. The magnitude or the scale of the changes might vary a little bit. I mean, in the, in the examples that I've just mentioned to you there, um, 12 weeks of detraining caused a 14% loss in, in muscle strength. That was, for instance... And how they would test that? via like how many bench presses you can do or this this yeah. particular study was a one rep max it's not right. an endurance strength thing which is quite it's an important point thing. exactly this is a one rep as hard as you can go mm-hmm. in this instance the 14 percent i'm reporting is a leg press but yeah. it, the same study looked at le- uh, bench press leg press bicep curls mm. the, there's other methods you can do um isometric or isokinetic the the henwood study that i mentioned where they did 24 weeks of detraining looked at bench press upright row biceps leg press leg curls leg extension so pretty much isolate all the major muscle groups and test them at max right that one by the way remember 24 weeks off 17 to 20 percent loss okay the, the that's in strength that's yeah, in strength yeah, yeah the other study that i mentioned from belgium whose surname i'm not even going to try and murder <laughs> twice on a podcast uh 14 percent loss in 12 weeks so here you're looking at about 1% per week loss. This Remember, these were both in slightly older men. Yeah. Now, again, 
strength. So, so okay, so we've already covered a little bit about that. In in footballers, for instance, uh, this is soccer for those listening in the States, uh, when they start the season, they don't do the strength training they used to do because they just don't have time. Too much training has to be field-based. So there have been some opportunistic studies in footballers where they've looked at how does their strength change during a season as they reduce their strength training stimulus. And similar thing there is one session a fortnight sees them losing about 1% a month. Two sessions a fortnight, i.e. one per week, no loss at all. Wow. So so the less frequently you do the training, the more quickly you lose it. This is obvious. Mm-hmm. But one session a week is enough for maintenance in that group. Um, the key thing with strength is that there is a significant neurological component to strength. One of the things that listeners will have potentially experienced for themselves is when they go to the gym for the first time, they struggle hugely. Within two to three visits, their improvements are often quite large without having seen any muscle changes. They're not bigger. Their muscle surface area, if we measured it, would not be higher, but they are stronger because of neurological factors. They are improving coordination and recruitment yeah so so their technique essentially improves yeah it's it's and it's partly (laughs) technique but it's actually it's it's molecular technique it's neurological technique my ability to activate the muscles to perform a movement is actually better and therefore i am stronger now using what you said earlier train it to gain it and use it or lose it when i stop going to the gym one of the first things I lose is that neurological adaptation. So when it comes to strength, the principles are all the same, but the initial reversal might be a little bit faster than you'd find for some of the structural things because, you know, an endurance athlete is losing fitness, performance, lactate threshold, VO2 max, because the enzyme numbers, the little factories in our muscles are literally diminishing in number. A strength training athlete is seeing performance drop before structure changes does that make sense yeah in the same way that they see performance improve before structure necessarily changes but other than that the principles are the same if you if you are accustomed to going to the gym four to six times a week and lifting a certain tonnage that's what they refer to it per week in the gym and you are now denied because of a lockdown let's say that was to happen hypothetically um and you could only go once a week you would lose whatever specific stimulus you stop providing. Mm-hmm. So if you continue to lift heavy, your 1RM and your maximum lifting capacity will be defended. But if you lift heavy only a few times and not 10 reps, then your endurance, your strength endurance component will diminish. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's exactly the same concept. It's just applied to specific muscles in a specific context. I'm going to ask you to take a bit of a gander at this, and it's probably not necessarily, it's maybe even a sports psychologist would be able to answer this better. But when we talk specifically about taking time off from exercise, and we talked about why people have perceptions of being less fit than they were before. I'm always slightly sort of inquisitive about this question of what your body, how you perceive your fitness. So mm. in other words, if I'm going into, and I haven't trained for 12 weeks, and I'm going to, going to do a one rep max at the gym. My perception is I haven't been training, therefore I'm probably not going to be as good as I was before. Therefore, you probably underperform because your mind says, oh. and I think it probably applies the same to riding. If I've been off the bike for a few weeks, and I think the same applies to runners, 
physiologically they might be very similar to where they were but for, from a psychological effect they go oh haven't been training don't feel that great feel a, don't feel as fluid or, or as as good as I have been before therefore I'm probably not going to be as good as I was on this ride as I was four weeks ago do you think that plays a role in the outcome of some of these test results I mean how accurate can they be are they conservative are they test results that probably keep do we need to keep that psychological effect in mind when it comes to those long breaks yeah we do because when you ask a person how was that ride you've been off the bike for two weeks how did you go and they say it was really lousy i felt terrible and so on they probably are two percent four percent if it's two weeks remember we said two to four weeks so let's say they're five percent worse physiologically they'll tell you it was 20 percent worse Mm. because that's just their perception. And to some degree, one must appreciate that perception is reality. I've got another friend who, who's juggling work demands with training demands and has been inconsistent about training. And that inconsistency starts to become a bigger and bigger thing, like a little stone in the shoe. And eventually that inconsistency of training is undermining the training enormously, far larger maybe than the physiological effect. So. Mm. What the numbers and the graphs would show probably doesn't reflect that person's reality. And of course, you have to be sensitive to that. I think it comes back, though, to that mindset issue is that you just have to understand that you're going to have peaks and troughs and valleys mm. and, and so on. And you just have to kind of roll with those and allow your fitness to emerge slowly as opposed to forcing it and panicking when it doesn't quite work. You know, a couple of weeks back, we released this Psychology of Food podcast. <laughs> yeah. And you see a lot of people who panic about a missed meal or about a bad weekend, too many drinks, too much junk food. In the larger scheme of things, those things don't hurt us that much. And I suspect training's the same, you know. Mm. In the larger scheme of things, one week of bad training isn't going to harm you too bad. Of course, if it's three, four, five, six weeks building into three months, you're going to have to get a grip on it because your expectation is X, but you're going to be performing considerably below that. So you have to eventually get a grip on it. But short-term panic doesn't help and it only hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a fascinating uh, investigation into that, and I have to say, like it, it's 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 nice to know, to some extent, that I don't have to stress too much about the odd occasion when I'm not as regular in the exercise because, you know, as we've alluded to, on many different moments in this podcast, that these are realities of life, and um, I think for all of you that are listening to this podcast, you know, keeping a regular training program is important. Missing a couple of weeks or even a week or two is not as bad as you think it's going to be. And uh, keeping the intensity. I mean, if you look at all the sports that we've discussed so far, it, it, it probably applies. I mean, I don't know how this applies to things like soccer or does it apply to archery or all the sports that don't necessarily have mm. physiological. I mean, I always wonder for sports like bowls, for instance, where keeping your eye in squash, yeah. tennis, yeah. all those sort of things, does keeping your eye in as important in terms of you losing it um golf i imagine is something that if you don't if you have a break you won't have this you won't strike the ball as as well as you have before because your eye's not in your yeah. your, your your the way you're hitting well, the ball is not correct it's interesting that you bring that up and, and i don't want to bring it back to endurance sports but like right now is the giro and there's mm-hmm. a rest day today and there was a rest day last monday and everyone who follows cycling will know the concept that the day after a rest day is a tough day yeah. So that's really interesting because you'd think if you don't follow the sports and you're not 
accustomed, you'd think that the rest day would be beneficial for everyone, but it's actually a pretty high risk uh, intervention in that environment for high performance. So it's yeah. really interesting, like why would a day off for a guy who's riding five, six hours do more harm than good? And part of it is, and I'm hopefully you'll see where I'm going with this, is you, what you spoke about is keeping your eye in. Yeah. Is, is probably a physiological thing related to neuromuscular activation, related to habituation, routine, psychology. Mm. Potentially in the case of cyclists, one of the theories I've always thought is that when those guys are so accustomed to training so long and so hard all the time and they stop for a day, their metabolic capacity is so enormous that they probably start storing water and glycogen pretty quickly. Yeah. And so a day off the bike actually ends up making them like a little bit overloaded with glycogen and that, mm. that's one theory anyway up. for them <laughs> because they still ride on those well that's days. why they ride on yeah. those rest days because if they don't keep that stimulus there and it's the same reason why in the french open coming up and in wimbledon and whatever and golf we've seen a major at the weekend um if a player plays on the thursday and they've got the final on the saturday they'll they'll be training on this on the friday potentially quite hard because they're just constantly laying down those same patterns. Yeah. And you can talk about myelin and neurological adaptations and so on and just keeping that stimulus there. And we could debate about how much of that is psychological and emotional versus physiological. But the point is, it doesn't really matter much what the sport is. There is something about developing a physiological, psychological and emotional routine. Yeah. And so I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting what we've said in this podcast where I've said don't panic if you have to lose a few days of training. Don't panic if it's four weeks. As long as you're smart, you understand specificity and how a little bit goes a long way, that's all good and well. But but I also understand that like it, when you get on the bike and you've come back from your road trip, Tegan, and you are... A little, you feel a little bit uncomfortable. You don't feel natural on the bicycle. And now mm. all of a sudden you've lost all of it. You haven't, but... But you have, you've lost something. <laughs> you've lost some of the, maybe the emotional or the psychological and benefit because you start doubting yourself. And I still system. think it's largely yeah. neurological. I think yeah. it's a coordination thing. You know, you yeah. don't think of cyclists needing coordination, but of no. course you do. Not a rhythm involved in cycling. You've you yeah. got you to activate the glutes, the hamstrings, the tib mm. ants, the quads, all at exactly the right time. And if, and if that, if that orchestra is 2% out of sync, that's not music anymore. It's noise. <laughs> And so that's what's happening. And yeah. I think the same is true for bowls and darts and tennis and golf and hockey mm. and whatever other sports there are. So, yeah. so that's, that's the reason that a little bit... But remember, as quickly as that goes away, two or three days, it comes back. Yeah. So again, there's always a differentiation here to be made between what is structurally changing. Things like your enzymes, your red blood cells, your heart size, your ventricular mass, your muscle cross-sectional area, all this stuff. And neurological psychological emotional the the latter comes and goes really quickly yeah which should be comforting to you and the former doesn't go away as quickly as you think yeah. which should also be really comforting to you so, so all in so all my latter will be a lot better off because the former isn't as bad as i thought it was <laughs> well in theory so now that ex exactly that's an appropriate I feel way a to, bit better about to sum really. it up yeah so yeah. we're not we're not condoning taking six weeks off and no. thinking you're going to come back at the same place you left of course but I think there's this message here, it's, yeah, there's lose it or use it or lose it. Mm. But the rate at which that happens is surprisingly low. Mm. And you can take a good deal of comfort in how quickly you get it back. Yeah. If you're smart about it and you just accept it. The other thing about it is, and I'll end on this, is when you are forced to take two weeks or whatever off, 
you actually have a really cool opportunity to transform yourself a little bit because if your training up to that point had been high volume, slow, long, slow distance, maybe for the runners, like base, base type training, and you then remove that stimulus, but you introduce in your detraining period a little bit of high intensity stuff, you'll come back a slightly transformed athlete. And that's pretty cool. So there's opportunity here where you see cost. Yeah. That's important. I, I, I remember, I just forget exactly who it was um i think it might have been philip gaming on the uh youtube cycling sensation um, <laughs> as he likes to call himself um talks a little bit about when he does his tests like his when he does a hill test or go and does it does a one-off hill rep to see where he's at or he does a ftp test he generally does that in the weeks when the volume has to come down um because he's fresh and he feels he can perform at his max so you can use as ross has said you can use these opportunities maybe to do those those one-off tests like ftps and uh, that hill race that you wanted that hill climb that you want to just try and do a pb whether you're running or cycling it's always a good time to do it um so before we leave we just want to uh, throw a few more thank yous your way and this is particularly to our patreon uh, members and uh, since our last podcast we've got a couple more people to add to our patreon family and i'm going right. to ask ross to introduce them yeah so we we published last week a uh, a topic that's maybe our most controversial ever, the, the transgender athlete one. And <laughs> I was going to lose lots of Patreon members or gain a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm pleased to say we gained. And the, in fact, your response on social media has been very good. There have been a few people called us out on a few things in, a, in actually quite a respectful way. One of the patrons, Travis, has emailed me and, and I'm, I'm going to reply to you. By the time you listen to this, Travis, I will have replied. So thanks for that. There was another one, actually, who, who recently joined. Um, I'll get to him in a moment who actually then deleted his comment on Patreon, but I've managed to see it just in time and, and reply. And he actually is trans himself, and he was saying that it's it's such a difficult subject to broach with people before accusations start flying about, about being transphobic or being misogynistic, depending on which side of the fence you sit. Yeah. And he said that he really appreciated the fact that there was this place in the internet um, where you could have these discussions reasonably. So I was very heartened by that. Thank you yeah. for all of your um, comments in response to the pod, even the even the critical ones. They are never dismissed. Mm-hmm. On the note of, of Patreon, um, if you go to patreon.com forward slash science of sport you'll arrive at a page where you can then make pledges um, there's three different tiers or levels and you basically just donate out of the kindness of your heart and the pleasure of your ears <laughs> to our our hobby uh, so there are there are five six to welcome into the the community this week um, at the olympic athlete level we have alex watson um, fee Hurston, I think, um, first name's just Fi or Fee. Thanks very much. And then Satish Puna of the Olympic athlete level. We have uh, the Wet Bandits podcast have come in. <laughs> That's a bit of podcast. I'm going to listen to that. Yeah, go and have a look. Wet Bandits. They've come in at the Olympic champion level. And then Toby Fells and Jonathan, just Jonathan, no, no surname, have come in at the Olympic legend level. So the community is growing. I'm really pleased about that, obviously. I know you are also. We've we've certainly done well committing to our one a week so far. Yep, so so good. far, so good. And yeah, it's been really good to to see that number grow. So thanks very much to all those patrons once again. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. And thank you to you, Ross, for your uh, very good insight into this uh, very important topic for those of you that are actively exercising. I certainly have taken a lot of heart from it. 
And I know that this week I've got a bit of a tough week in terms of deadlines and that sort of thing. So I probably won't get to do as much riding as I would like to do on my non-deadline weeks. But I feel heartened by the fact that uh, maybe when I get back on the bike properly next week, I won't have lost too much. But from us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.